and I essentially advocated for my job. I said, hey, like I would bump into someone in the department, say, hey, if you want someone just to teach, why don't you give me a call? And they're like, oh, rumble, rumble. We only hire people who do research. Rumble, rumble, rumble. Anyway, so that went on for like two or three years. And I'm Rohan, and welcome back to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today. Hi everyone, welcome back to After Office Hours. Today we have an awesome guest for you, Dr. Anne Satterback. Yes, Dr. Satterbeck is a professor of the practice in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and the director of the Duke Engineering First Year Experience. Yeah, so you probably know her from First Year Engineering Design. She's an awesome professor and everyone knows her from that. Dr. Satterbeck is an incredible educator and innovator in the classroom and it's been great. Rowan and I have had the pleasure of taking courses with her and experiencing all the new and innovative techniques to better learn how to be an engineer. Yeah, Dr. Satterbeck actually does research on improving education. Um, she's done so much for um, furthering engineering education, as Becky said, and I'm in her class right now, and we the textbook that we use is one that she actually wrote, so she's very involved both in the nitty-gritty, I would say, of um, developing engineering education, as well as looking at the larger picture and working with others to do that as well. Could not agree more, and without further ado, Dr. Satterbeck. Dr. Sadebeck, thank you so much for coming and taking the time to speak with us. Uh, I want to get started by noting that I'm sure you've had lots of students who've looked up to you over the years, um, but I want to kind of turn that around and ask who do you looked up to and throughout your career, has there been someone who, either someone who you knew personally or someone who, uh, a public figure, something who you as aspire to be like or who inspired you? I would say that one person that inspired me um, was a faculty member, the only female engineering faculty member that I knew when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, and her name was uh, Jackie Shanks. Uh, she was hired into the chemical engineering department at Rice um, when I was maybe a junior. And so I never took a class from her, but she went out of her way to be kind to the small handful of women that were in the program. Um, Having her still at Rice was one reason that I actually was able to go back to teaching at Rice, kind of make an easy transition back into that program. She was still there. She advocated for hiring me. Uh, and then like six months after I got there, she actually decided to move to Iowa State, which was a, a bummer for me because I really was looking forward to being her colleague. Um, so she's someone that I, I certainly looked up to and was, um, was a role model. Um, another person that actually comes to mind is my husband's grandmother. So I didn't actually know her well because she was older when I started dating my husband. But she actually uh, had a PhD in chemistry and she taught at American University. And so listening to the stories that come down through his family about her and some of the obstacles that she faced. So she's someone that, again, I always... Um, I looked up to, I admired, even though I didn't get to know her um, very well before she passed. 
That's really interesting. It, it seems like a lot of your, your role models were focused on the fact that you were a woman in a field that was predominantly dominated by men. Yes. Um, what has your experience been like as a woman in those fields and how has that changed over time? So I would say by and large, it's been pretty positive. Um, I had a girlfriend who just recommended recently watching a movie. I can't have to look up the name of it. It was something like, you know, this is a scientist um, that basically chronicled like some really yucky stories of women in science and engineering. You know, I have not really had that. Like I felt isolated at times, but I've rarely felt kind of actively discouraged. So again, I would say that, you know, again, at times I was lonely. Um, I would say also I learned to get along with men pretty early along, you know, pretty early on. I mean, that's what I did all my homework with. Was, you know, so that was, uh, I developed good working relationships with men. So I would say that there, uh, there have been more advantages. So again, like when I came through graduate school, um, they, they give out something called a National Science Foundation uh, Fellowship, Graduate Fellowship. And I received one of those. And I think that um, being a female at that time, that was probably an advantage. And I feel like I made good on that promise because they were looking for people to go into uh, academia. And I finished my PhD and I've taught now for about 25 years. And so I feel like I made good on that promise. Um, but I, again, I think, I think in some ways it's been slightly more advantageous in terms of you know, hiring and moving and things of that nature. Um, and while I've been lonely, I've never been really been shut out in some of the more negative ways wow. my peers have. It's good to hear that. Um, I what it sounds like. Do you think things have changed over your um, career? How you know? I, I know that you did your um, PhD in chemical engineering, and I you're sort of transitioned into BME right now. Um, do you believe that things have changed for the better, and or would you still like to see some more progress? So the answer to that is yes. So I think things are definitely better than they were, and I still think that there is more room for progress. So BME is the kind of the highest percentage female, and it has been oh, wow. uh, consistently okay. for the last, I don't know, 20 or so years, I think. Uh, it's almost 50-50 at the undergraduate level. Again, it's lower at the graduate level and lower again at the faculty level. Um, a field like electrical engineering, again, not talking specifically at Duke, but uh, more nationally, is something like 15% female, so it's much lower. So I think that things are better than they were, but I think that there is still room for growth. Um, it'll give me something to work on for the next, I don't know, 15 or so years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing that. Um, so I see that, you, like Rohan uh, mentioned, you did your undergraduate degree in chemical engineering yes. and biochemistry, yes. and then you proceeded to do your PhD in chemical engineering. What drew you to those fields initially, and then what got you hooked once you were in? Yeah, so actually all along I wanted to be a biomedical engineer. <laughs> um, it turns out, though, when I was applying to programs, and this was in the uh, oh, mid-'80s, there just weren't that many BME programs. So there was one at Duke. There was one at Case Western Reserve. I mean, there were a handful around the country. And I got a lot of advice that said I should get a, a degree in a, quote, traditional engineering field first, like at the undergraduate level. If I wanted to specialize, I could do that with the PhD. Um, and then so if I considered, you know, like physics or chemistry, like, you know, either side of physics or the mechanics or kind of E&M versus chemistry, which I like. And I liked I like chemistry more. 
And so I went the chemical engineering route rather than the mechanical or electrical engineering route as an undergraduate. And then I did this double with biochemistry because like that was the kind of attempt to combine the two at the time. Then um, I did actually apply for both chemical and biomedical engineering uh, PhD programs. I got the same advice. Uh, it was also compounded by the fact that one of the places I applied like literally lost my application because <laughs> um, this was like in the days of like paper applications. And again, you know, the BME department was like kind of a hodgepodge and mess and in a basement. So the story goes, right? And so, you know, finally I called to like ask about my application and they're like, uh, I don't think we have it. And I'm like, uh, I think you do. I got like the little, you know, the green return slip thing, you know? Have you ever mailed anything with like the green? Oh, like the, the post office has these return re, return requests something. Anyway, you fill out these forms and once it's received, they send you the postcard back so you can be sure that you got it. Gotcha. Like that's how you used to send the taxes to the government, right? These return request forms. Anyway, so I did that with my graduate application. So I knew that they got it, but then they're like lying to me. Um, that's so, so unfortunate. Anyway, so it, as it turned out, uh, the places that received my application and acknowledged my application um, and accepted me uh, were more chemical engineering programs. So I ended up going there. Uh, I did pick someone who worked in kind of a biomedical field to do my PhD research. And it actually worked out well because when I came out of graduate school um, was when Bill Clinton was president and they were doing the first attempted kind of managed healthcare, right? Some, some attempt at not everything being just like scattered. And so I had interviews with all these pharmaceutical companies and every single one of them canceled. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so I was able to fall back on the fact that I was a chemical engineer and look for more traditional chemical engineering jobs. And so that actually bridged me. I worked in industry uh, as a chemical engineer for about four years and that bridged me um, to starting to teach at Rice. Yeah, were you anticipating during your PhD working in industry um, what were your plans and was that unexpected or expected? What were you thinking? So I, yeah, so I went to graduate school thinking that I wanted to be a professor. Oh, oh wow. And, and I was actually stupid enough to think that professors actually spent most of their time teaching, <laughs> which was clearly incorrect. So like, I discovered this, you know, I was, I was really clueless. So it was something like my third year in graduate school where, you know, I'm like, wow, it seems like all the professors actually really do research, not teach. I think that's something that um, a lot of undergrads don't realize until they come to college. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you talk about now in my defense, they didn't have like research experience for undergraduates, like, like undergraduates didn't do research. Right. So there was this whole other thing that like, I just didn't know about. I didn't know what it was, what it meant. So I was about halfway through grad school and I really liked working as a TA and I actually didn't really like research that much, which, you know, you're not supposed to say. Um, and so when I finished, I was looking for teaching focused jobs, but there just weren't any. I mean, I should say there were like two that I found in all of chemical or biomedical engineering that were teaching focused and I applied for them and I was rejected from both and it was fine. So I looked for a job in industry. Uh, because I was sure that I didn't want a research-focused faculty job. Uh, but I was still really interested in teaching, and I was uh, working in industry in Houston. And so since I was an alum of Rice, which is in Houston, I had occasion to be back on campus, and I essentially advocated for my job. I said, hey, like I would bump into someone in the department, such as Jackie Shanks, who I mentioned earlier, and I'd say, hey, 
if you want someone just to teach, why don't you give me a call? And they're like, oh, rumble, rumble. We only hire people who do research. <laughs> rumble, rumble, rumble. Anyway, so that went on for like two or three years. And then um, the chemical, like a group of people in the chemical engineering department moved out to form the bioengineering department. And then they're like, gee whiz, we have to offer all these classes to our undergraduates and we have no one who really wants to teach. Maybe we should call Anne. And so they called me and I interviewed and they hired me. And that was it. I was going to say, it was kind of a backdoor way into a job, but it was awesome because it's what I wanted to do. Right. I was going to say, that makes a lot of sense knowing you, just that you have such a passion for engineering education, um, that you had an interest in education from yes. the start. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about where your interest in teaching came from and uh, if that was something you always knew you wanted to do? Well, I, in terms of like being a professor, like it seemed like a good job, uh, at the time when I was 20, it was like, well, they seem to have a really nice job. They spend, you know, their time teaching and working with students and the university environment is, is very vibrant. Um, again, I didn't really understand the whole research thing. But as a TA, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of teaching, like one like lecture, like a small section every week with a group of 20 students. I had office hours. Uh, I did some grading. I just really liked that. And to be honest, I didn't even mind grading. And <laughs> wow. I still don't mind grading. I still don't mind grading. Like most people think that grading is like the worst thing. I'm okay with it. So again, it was just, it was one of these situations that I, and I try to, when I coach students about thinking about what they want to do, they're like, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, well, just try it and see if you like it. And so that was a situation where like I tried teaching and I tried research and I just really liked teaching. So I just moved towards that um, as much as I could in my career. Do you think that, you know, you mentioned that you worked in industry. Do you think that your time there, although you admitted that, you know, you would have liked to have a teaching position right out of your PhD. Do you think that your time in industry helped you sort of manage or educate, learn how to edu how best to educate engineers? So I think it made a huge difference. I think working in industry made a huge difference in the way that I approach teaching. For one thing, um, I teach in a very kind of project-based, team-based way. That is because that is how things work in industry, right? It is not how things work in academics, right? Where like one professor and that professor is in charge and the professor like controls the actions of the graduate students, but that is not at all what it is like to work in industry. Um, I worked on, I would say, half a dozen projects, um, kind of, yeah, projects meaning like six to six months to two years and uh, time span, always on a team, always multidisciplinary teams, integrated by, um, by age, by major, like all these different dimensions, we had to come together to solve problems. That's all I did was work on teams on projects. And so when I look at the curriculum and I see all of you mostly sitting by yourself, working on your own like homework and taking tests, right? That does not resemble almost in any way the practice of engineering. Completely agree. And so, <laughs> and so it's not that like the technical things that I learned considerably impacted what I teach, but the way in which the, the kinds of experiences that I want students to have as part of their education um, was considerably altered by this experience in industry. So again, that's why I have a focus on, you know, project and problem-based learning, um, active learning, you know, team-based experiences, like 
Someone's on your team you don't like. Too bad. That's the way it is. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's how it is in the real world. Do you think that your time, looking back even further, do you think your did you notice any of these um, flaws or did you have any hopes for what engineering education could be like as an undergrad? I mean, did you did you sit in class thinking, you know, I wish this class was taught this way or um, were there any like horror stories or like really impactful professors or teachers that you had that you sort of still aspire to be like or teach like? Yeah, that's a great question. I am pretty sure that my 20-year-old self did not think like that. <laughs> that's fair. Um, you know, I wish I could, like, make some things up quickly, but I, I don't think I thought like that. I mean, I can remember professors who were kind and who showed kind of concern and compassion towards students. I can remember I had one... Uh, professor um, Joe Hightower, who, again, I'm, I'm a slightly high-strung student, so I was like, oh, yeah, I got to do well on the test, right? So I can remember going to his office. This is like when people physically went to office hours, and that was the only way you could, of course, you to talk to the professor because, you know, no one had email. And so I would have to go to his office before the exam and talk with him, and um, he, he told me the story about the imposter syndrome, so again, I don't know if you've heard of that. This is the like, you know, you're sure that everybody else is smarter than you and you're the only person who doesn't know what they're doing. And so he says, you know, Anne, I think you might have some imposter syndrome here, right? You know, you, you clearly have strong grades. You know, you're always in class. You do well in the homework. You did well in the first, you know, like you need to go read this article by Rich Felder and understand this imposter syndrome. And I think you need to like internalize this. You feel free to come and talk to me whenever you want. Okay, but but you know you're good at this. Like lean into that a little bit more. So again, I can remember individuals like that who were were positive and encouraging. You know, I can remember a few people who were uh, not those things, um, who kind of intended to like you know tear you down. But again, like every single class I went to was almost completely lecture all the time. So in terms of, you know, thinking more creatively about how to teach, I, I, I really, I wish I could say that I had those kind of visions at, at 20, but I didn't. <laughs> That's fair. That's very reasonable. Um, so as someone who's taken, I guess Ron and I have both taken uh, cl classes with you over our time at Duke. Um, and the class that I took was an in introduction to engineering design, uh, where there was a strong focus on more of the soft skills you need in engineering, working on a team, things that, like you said, you learned a lot or you saw a lot from an in industry. Do you think that should be a greater focus in engineering classes throughout um, undergraduate and graduate education? And what balance, where do you think the balance should be struck between spending time learning technical material versus how to work as an engineer? So uh, first I'd like to say, I think that's a false choice. So I don't think that it's either learning technical material or learning teamwork skills, right? I would argue that you can learn the technical material that you need embedded within a team. So for example, in 260, where Rohan is now, right? The, the amount of learning that you will do with regards to conservation principles, kinetics, right? All of those things will be much more intense in the problem-based or team-based format than it will be from taking 
doing the homework or taking a quiz or something. Now, I do think, so I, I think that's a false choice. I think you can, I think you can learn the technical work embedded in a team. And that's not exactly what we did in EGR 101 because everyone was working on different projects. And so it wasn't like kind of equation-y or whatever. Right. I, I, could, I feel like the, the, the biggest skills I remember, if, you know, looking back three and a half years from now, or three and a half years back, the biggest thing I remember is learning how to properly write a memo, learning how to set up uh, a pew matrix, learning how to really work, like, work on a design right. project and how to manage that project. And those were the objectives of that course, right? So we didn't have what I would consider traditional technical objectives. It was about learning the design process. It was about learning how to communicate. So the fact that you're saying those things back to me is actually encouraging to me, <laughs> right? No, it's, and, and there's skills that I'm, I'm really like needing and utilizing now as a senior in the yes. senior design classes <laughs> when I'm like, oh, this is actually, I needed this, like I need this to make right. a project. Like this right. is great that I know yeah. this. I mean, the, the only thing I would say about it, it is important, like again, even doing technical work and teamwork, there does need to be some method of accountability, right? Because you could have a team of four or five people and one person could not really be mastering the material and they can kind of skate through. So there are ways that you have to be a little bit careful about that. Um, but I believe you can learn there, there is, if, if the university ever lets me take a sabbatical, <laughs> which, I, which I think is unlikely, um, there is a university in Denmark. I'd have to look up the name is like Allsberg or something. It's like AA something. And it's an entirely project-based engineering curriculum. And it's ranked as one of the best engineering programs in Europe. So again, they, they embed their technical work within the context of a team. Right? All this is very long-winded, which is saying is, if I was the boss, which I am not, right, we would have more uh, project and problem-based learning embedded in technical courses because it is a mechanism. It, you know, it, it, hits, it hits both goals, learning to work in a team, project planning, communication, as well as the technical uh, goals. I, I, I think that I would definitely appreciate that. I think 260 at least has been one of the, I don't think there has been very many classes I've taken that have been project-based and I would definitely like to have seen more, I guess, um, earlier on. Um, but yeah, so as you were transitioning to uh, being a teacher, right? I mean, it sounds like you went from not just being passionate about teaching, but also sort of innovating in the teaching realm. How did you learn about, you know, how to be a good educator? I mean, did you have like formal training? I, is there formal training for that or, you know? How, Hilariously, uh, no, there is no formal training. How ironic. For, yeah, we, we won't go there. So um, first, you know, I basically showed up. I, I tried to find myself a couple of mentors um, when I was at RISE. So again, in this case, these were people who were just, I would say, kind of good teachers. So I would do things like observe their class. I would go talk to them. I'd have them come in and observe my class. I also became involved in an organization called the American Society for Engineering Education. And so that's, it's like a group, it's like BMES, but for engineering educators, okay? And they have yearly meetings. And so I would start going to those meetings. I would listen to talks. I would go to workshops associated with them. Um, early on, in order to learn how to do problem-based learning, I had made some contacts with some faculty at Georgia Tech. I invited myself to visit them and stay for a couple of days and watch them to see how they organized their classes, how they did facilitation. Um, I brought some sample problems and let them help me, you know, help uh, basically edit 
some of the ideas that I had. So I, I basically actively sought out mentors early on. And then again, over the course of 20 years, now I, I probably spend a little more time mentoring than I do being mentored. Um, but that was good. So other people helped me as I was getting going. I really like that because, you know, you described how you got into that. You were really persistent about you, what you said was a backdoor way of getting in. And it sounds like you really seized the day in terms of taking advantage of the opportunity and observing as much as you could. So that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> One question I want to ask is about the textbook you wrote, uh, Bioengineering Fundamentals. I can imagine that a lot of the work that went into that book was obviously technical research on the material, but, but also I can imagine, especially from your perspective, um, a lot of the work must've been, how can I dis decimate this information um, as best as like, as, as clearly as possible. Can you tell me a bit about what your experience was like writing that textbook um, and what kind of your focus sure. was? Sure. So first of all, I would say that writing a textbook has been like the single longest project <laughs> of my career and I, I would not recommend it. I, on the other hand, I think it's been one of probably the, one of the more impactful things that I have done. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure it was the worst thing ever, but maybe doing it when you have young children was, was a bad choice. Um, so the, the kind of the framework for the book, which was kind of conservation accounting and conservation principles and for, and I guess in mass energy, momentum and charge, that was an idea that we borrowed from a, a textbook that was published out of some folks at Texas A&M. And again, that had been written as kind of like a general engineering curriculum. So something for sophomores, for all majors to kind of get on the same page. So we took that idea and then basically textualized it in biomedical engineering, bioengineering, biochemical engineering. So kind of the presentation, the organization of the material. So that was something that I was like intellectually I was familiar with, but all of the example problems and all the homework problems like that, we pretty much wrote from scratch. So that took, um, I don't know, like the last edit of the book, the last time I was like proofreading, I was like nine months pregnant with Ben. And that was like seven years into my time at Rice. So it took on that time scale. So I spent a lot of time in my summer doing that. I also hired undergraduate students to help me create problems because creating problems that are interesting and challenging and contextualized and 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 relevant biomedical material is time consuming and at times boring. And so I, I used an army of undergraduates, again, plus two of my colleagues at Rice. And again, over a five or seven year period, we kind of slogged through it. That sounds smart, you know, getting the perspective of the your audience essentially. Yes. I was very lucky to hire a woman. Elaine Lee, when um, she was a sophomore, for whatever reason, again, most sophomores do not have radically good technical writing skills, but she did. And so she actually, again, she was like 19, 20 years old. She actually edited the book. Um, interestingly now, even though she got her PhD, she actually has a job now where she does technical writing, which I guess should not have been a surprise back then. Um, but she was really good, and she helped um, take the expert approach and convert it to a student-centered approach. And generally, the 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 largest or the most frequent 
comment or compliment, I should say. I get lots of complaints about the textbook, but the, the most frequent compliment that I get about the book is that it was written for students at that their level of understanding. And I attribute that largely to Elaine's contribution. Wow. How do you, do you get like feedback? You mentioned you get a lot of like complaints about the book. Um, how, do you know like how many, you know, how many universities is it used in? How many classes is it used in? Yeah, I think it's used in like 20 or 25 universities wow. right now okay. and their biomedical engineering programs. I, I do know that they translated it into Arabic. <laughs> wow. Because, wow. because one day, you know, I was just like innocently like sitting in my office at Rice and um, someone knocked on the door and they delivered a package. It didn't like fit in my mailbox because it was really thick. And I was like, huh, what is this? So I cut it open and it's the textbook in Arabic. <laughs> That's awesome. And I didn't even know that they were translating it. But apparently if they translate it to another language, they send you one copy. So um, Prentice Hall sent me one copy of my book. And I actually lived in Saudi Arabia as a child. And so I could recognize my name on the cover. So I was sure that that was the book. <laughs> Can I ask you about what you were doing in Saudi Arabia? So my, my father worked for Exxon and my, my parents, we moved to, to Saudi Arabia, to Rastaner, Saudi Arabia. And I was there from uh, sixth through ninth grade. What was that like? It was hot. <laughs> uh, it was actually delightful. Um, we were in a small international school, um, generally really good teachers, um, lots of extra, extracurricular activities to keep us busy. And uh, since we were not Muslim, we were required to leave the country every year for six weeks. And so my parents used this as an opportunity to visit like the United States, like our family and the doctors for like one week of the year and buy clothes. And then the other four to five weeks we spent traveling. And so uh, as a child, or actually middle school or whatever, I, I traveled extensively through Europe and some in Asia as well. So that gave me a very different worldview um, from a typical, typical 15-year-old. Do you think that influenced why you pursued chemical engineering? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I pursued chemical engineering because I liked math and science gotcha. and not like the humanities. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that growing up in the shadow of a refinery really makes a difference. <laughs> That's very fair. <laughs> I know that you teach several classes and you're the director of the Duke Engineering first year experience and you wear several other hats. What does your day-to-day -day look like in terms of how you how you spend your time? Uh, it's really very varied. Um, so I'm going to give the non-COVID answer to that question. Yes, that'd be great. So I would say in a typical, a typical week, I probably spend between around a third of the time maybe in direct contact with students. So that would include like teaching or office hours or advising, just like talking to students. I'd spend about another third of the time like in meetings, <laughs> maybe only a quarter of the time, but like in meetings with adults, <laughs> trying to make decisions, get things going. Uh, I, I spend, uh, I don't know, time answering email. Actually spend some time actually working by myself so writing notes for class, doing things of that nature. Um, I, I talk to, I mean, I don't spend just, I don't spend all of my time just talking with people at Duke. I have kind of connections and projects that extend beyond Duke. So I certainly spend time working on that as well. 
I do not spend a lot of time writing grants, which I think uh, many of the people that you're interviewing do, which, which I love. I love not writing a lot of grants. Seems like a really big time, time saver in terms of focusing on the things that you want to focus on. <laughs> it does. I, I occasionally write engineering education type grants. I've only written a couple and it, it's very painful because I write very slowly. You, so you do do research, uh, if, if I'm correct, you do research in sort of education, you know, compared to the traditional sort of, you know, wet lab or wet lab research. Can you tell us more about how that works and who you like, do you conduct your research on like, stu- like you know, students? Are we your guinea pigs? Yes, you're in an experiment right now. <laughs> Is this a, are we, are we being tested right now? I'm just kidding. Only with your consent. So I would, so, so technically engineering education research is a field that's a little bit more towards um, like psychology, like people who have expertise a little bit more in that field in education than I do. I would say that the work that I do is, is what we call SOTL, which is in the science of teaching and learning. So I tend to be a person who uh, implements uh, new ideas, uh, new pedagogies in engineering education, and then I measure impact. So I do more assessment-related work. Uh, I do have, I, I've had had projects going in EGR 101, trying to understand the impact of the class on students kind of within that semester, and then um, following, uh, we're doing like a sophomore follow-up survey in 260, we're actually we're at BME 260. We're working on a project um, to try to understand um, how students understand the different types of work we do in the class, like in class problems or homework or PBL, and how that helps them learn at different levels on something called Bloom's Taxonomy, where it helps them to remember or to uh, analyze something or to create. So again, so I, I would say, again, I, I do work in the science of teaching and learning, which is implementing new practices and then assessment to understand how students respond to those kinds of practices. If you had, let's just say, like a year fully funded, would, would you want to like and, and you were allowed to just like do like teaching experience experiments on your students would like would that be your dream year uh no my dream would be would be to still teach so i i, I don't know like if i did an experiment if i well to give if i was well i guess i guess you would do teaching while you were yes doing i mean that. but i'm kind of doing that now sure. um <laughs> so uh you know i feel like i mean i think that there's more that i could do in that area i'm not sure that that's what I would want to spend more time in. Yeah, I, there are other things that interest me like curriculum development, you know, you know, thinking more outside of just a course and thinking more about programs and how courses chain together to really develop students. I mean, I think that, you know, again, I would, if I was to expand, I would consider thinking about, um, again, science of teaching learning a- across a curriculum rather than within a course. That's, that's funny. I think I just asked you if you had a year fully funded, would you still do your job? And the answer was yes. I don't know why I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, I like my job. Yeah. I, okay. It, I think it's time to flip it. So if, if you couldn't do what you're doing right now, what, like, what, would be, what, would, what job would you want to have? If you couldn't be an engineering educator or do anything that you're doing right now in your current role? So then I would probably become an anthropologist. Interesting. (laughs) 
So the the one thing that like I've I've had kind of a sustained interest in, like intellectual interest in that's not engineering has to do with with anthropology and like the evolution of early uh, Homo sapiens. And so I do like research and reading in that area, like just for fun. So probably I would do that. Although I will have to say I might be getting a little bit old to like spend time sleeping in tents in East Africa <laughs> or Southern Africa, which is where a lot of that work is done now. So that would have been a better job when I was younger. But I, I could consider that. I mean, I think if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I might have said something like I would actually go back and get a PhD and really try to understand um, the impact, or try, to, try to do some research in the space of women, uh, individuals from underrepresented minority groups, and their relationship with science and engineering to really get a better understanding of that and try to push the field forward to be more inclusive. I think right now there's nothing I don't think would get me to go back and actually get a PhD again. Um, but yeah, those are, those are two things that I would do if, if I, if I was, if I was locked out of the building uh, from my day job. This is super random, but I'm sort of into anthropology as well. Cause I had a teacher in high school who was really into, I don't know if you've been following up with the discovery of this new subspecies called Homo naledi or whatever in Africa. Yeah. Uh -huh. And yeah. he, um, his, he like personally knew the. I think his name is like Dr. Lieber. This is super random, but he just knew like the person who was the head of the expedition. So basically half of my biology classes in high school were like him talking about the, what was the rising star expedition. So anthropology. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. We went. Um, so one of the things I do in the summer is I teach, uh, I teach engineering education workshops in Africa. And a couple of years ago, we stopped and spent three or four days in uh, outside of Johannesburg, which is where Homo Dodalis, right, the rising star, uh, was found. And that year, I took my son with me. And so we went out to that, uh, I'm trying to think, what is it called? I'm not going to really remember the name. But anyway, so there's a, an area that's northwest of Johannesburg, which is where all of these uh, hominid fossils are found. There's some really awesome museums, and you can kind of go down into the caves. It was delightful. So I can definitely re uh, recommend going there if you ever uh, if you ever find yourself in South Africa. Once this pandemic ends, hopefully we can <laughs> right. take a journey there. <laughs> yeah, it's called the Cradle of Humankind. Oh, I, I will add it to my post-pandemic list. Yes, you should add it to your post-pandemic I want to ask before uh, we wrap up in a few minutes, if you, if I'm sure undergrad, you mentor a lot of undergraduates and graduates and faculty as well. Um, if you could give one piece of advice to a incoming current engineer or incoming or current engineer um, about, I guess, anything, engineering life, um, what, what would that piece of advice be? Um, I have to think deeply about that. I would say the, the piece of advice I give most frequently right now is don't worry so much about your grades in math. Because <laughs> uh, I, I deal with a lot of first-year students who are very, very anxious about their grades in math. Um, I would try to convince them that uh, the grade that they get in their first or second math class at Duke does not determine their capacity to be a good engineer. 
So I... I think that's wonderful advice. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't... I'd have to think more deeply about that for other different groups, mm -hmm. but that's, that's the advice I give most frequently now. Okay, so I want to ask a question that's kind of off track, but on the topic of... You were talking about math. Um, I, like most engineers, took my math classes early on in the curriculum, uh, freshman, sophomore year. And it wasn't until late in my junior year or the beginning of my senior year uh, where I started to actually use some of this more advanced linear algebra and partial or, and using partial order differential equations in real applications. And by then, it, it wasn't really like fresh in my mind or I had convinced myself it wasn't important and I should forget it. Um, but what are your thoughts on that in the curriculum? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the BME curriculum well enough to know like when there are going to be these gaps in math. Like, do you think do you think math can be integrated the same way into into um, problem based learning? Like you can learn linear algebra applying it to a biomedical engineering problem the way you can hmm. learn or you can learn uh, project develop uh, project development skills in engineering as well. Yes, I believe you can do that. Um, I think it's a little bit harder but it can be done do you think that's like do you think that's the direction that like engineering education is moving uh no i don't um i don't think i think it's too much work okay. i think okay. <laughs> i think i think it's it's different from the way things have been done in the past um and it it requires an activation energy barrier right to change the way that you do things uh looks like time so no, it can, it can certainly be done. I mean, if you think back to uh, even you know K through twelve, there's a lot more project based learning in those in those environments and more active learning, team based work. So again, and you learn and you practice math in those contexts, not alone sitting in your room like writing on your homework, writing out your homework. I don't know. Again, I think for example in two sixty, students will. Uh, Refamiliarize themselves with ordinary differential equations and their numeric solutions right. in that class. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you didn't learn it the first time, you will learn it the second time. Sure. I can confirm this. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you like, to, Dr. Sadebeck, would you like to see more engineering classes? Because re reflecting on my experience, and I think what that's might be common um, outside of BME, I don't uh, know as much, but um, I feel like in my first two years, and especially my first year, I didn't take a ton of engineering classes. I think I took like one. Would you like to see more um, engineering classes being available? I mean, I know there are like prerequisites and things like that, but would you like to see a change where students can actually take those engineering classes earlier on? So I think that, I think we need to make sure that students have the opportunity to learn and understand what engineering is about before they decide whether they want to be an engineer or not. So I think EGR 101 is one way to understand what engineering is, but design or product design, which is basically what we teach, is not the only thing that engineers do. It is a thing that engineers do, but it is not the only thing that engineers do. And so it would be nice if students had the opportunity to take a couple or three courses that kind of introduce them to different ways of of thinking or doing and in the in the engineering space so that when they made a choice about a major or made a choice to become an engineer it was a well-informed choice rather than 
their reflection upon their abilities to do math and physics, which is what it has historically been. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I think that, yeah. And it sort of relates to your, you know, exactly relates to your advice about students not worrying too much or reading too much into the performance in right. those early math classes, which can be very hard. Right. And then you have some people who really, really like math, and then they get into engineering, and they're like, actually, I don't really like that this much. You know, I don't really like it this much, right? And they were told, oh, well, you're good in math, you would be good in engineering, which is not an untrue statement. But um, I can remember I had a student, it was many years ago, who dropped out of engineering because she, she went into physics because she hated open-ended problems. And her whole life, right, she had been given closed-ended problems in the math and the physics, and she's like, I don't want to be in engineering because the problems are too open-ended. I want to go to physics. And I was like, okay. Now, it, what she would discover is she like, got a PhD in physics is there are a lot of open-ended problems. But yes, um, at the bachelor's degree, you know, a lot of those problems, you know, they are more closed-ended. And so that was probably a better fit for her. So again, even though she was good at math, she didn't have any exposure to engineering until like the end of her sophomore year. And then it was like, whoops. Right. Yeah, no, sorry. I went on that this tangent. I, I just have been thinking about that for this whole semester. Um, yeah. But before we wrap up, there are a few kind of shorter questions that we like to ask to all of our guests. The first one is if you have any, uh, or I guess what book you're currently reading if you're reading a book, and if you have any recommendations for any good books you've read. Yeah, so I'm reading a book. I'm, I will not be able to come up with the name of it. It's like um, The Monster. No, it's The Dragon, The Woman, and something else. Anyway, it's a story about a, a family who escapes from Liberia during one of the civil wars. So I just started that. Uh, it's, is it a novel? No, it's a memoir. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, I had a, a, a girlfriend in town who spent some time in the Peace Corps in Liberia, but then who was evacuated when this all happened. <laughs> and wow. she recommended, she's my age. Uh, anyway, so she recommended this book to me. And so I just started it. So I'm only maybe 50 pages in. Um. I just, you know, the problem is I'm really terrible with the titles of books. Uh, I just finished reading the book called Just Mercy. So the faculty, I guess it was like Big Duke, had a uh, like a book club. Like it was like sign up and you can get a free book and you can talk. And I'm always looking for different books to read. And so I signed up for that and uh, we just finished reading Just Mercy. Great book. That was that was a really good book. I'm trying to think what other books I read. This is already more recommendations than most of our guests, so this is awesome. <laughs> well, you know, to be fair, uh, I didn't read it all between, like, by choice between when I was, like, 15 and 35, maybe. I mean, I was, I was in school. You know, I had to read a lot to be in school. <laughs> and then, you know, when my children were young, like I had no time. So I'm reading more now 
than I did even five years ago because of the pandemic, because I, I have a little bit of time on my hand. I mean, I don't want to work all the time and there's really, there's not much to do when you're at home. Like I don't want to clean my house extra amount. So uh, I am reading a little bit more than, than usual now. And the second question is totally random. Okay. It's what are your, are you a coffee or tea drinker? And if so, how many cups or what type of coffee, what type of tea? I do not drink coffee or tea. I drink. We're on a streak. We're like, we've had like, what is it now, Becky? Like six people in a row that don't drink coffee and tea or tea. Yeah, Yeah. I drink pretty much only water. I occasionally drink milk and that's it. God, there must be like some secret that like only the professors know because. No, I think most of my colleagues do drink coffee. So if you've had a run of people who don't drink coffee, then you're just. You're in a bit of a streak. Okay. <laughs> I think it. I think it'll stop soon. Maybe maybe Duke professor is just really healthy. <laughs> no, I mean I, I think I didn't I didn't start drinking coffee when my children were young, and that was the time of my life where I got the 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 most erratic and least amount of sleep. <laughs> and so I figured if I made it through that period, then I can, I can make it through now. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Satterbeck, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed this. You bet. Wow, that was a very fun episode. For sure. I think Dr. Satterbeck has a lot of really unique experiences that she talked about. And um, she seems very knowledgeable about a lot of things, right? I mean, the fact that she basically took her industry experience and use that as an inspiration for getting into teaching. And I love that story about how she was super persistent at Rice in sort of forging a new role for herself. Yeah. She like took her future into her own hands, literally, and kind of pushed until she found the path that where she loved what she was doing. Um, and even even when we asked her kind of if she, if she could do anything fully paid and she would still do what she does today. So that's always a good sign. Yeah, and I also thought it was pretty interesting that she mentioned that she would, if she couldn't be an engineer, she'd be an anthropologist. Yeah, that was interesting. She thought she thought of it pretty fast too. Like it was, it was. Yeah, there. and I would say not many professors would say something like that, right? I mean, no. Um, in, in the past, we've, when we've asked the question, like it takes people a few seconds to, to think of an answer. She was on top of it. Anyways, it was a great episode. I had a great time talking to Dr. Satterbeck. Me too. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Be sure to follow us on all your favorite social me- or sorry. Be sure to follow us on all your favorite channels including Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're we're getting to all the social media podcasts. Yes. Platforms. We're going to take over the internet, but we're not there yet, but you can follow us on all of those platforms at After Office Hours and of course Instagram as always at after double underscore office hours. Thanks so much. <laughs> See you guys next time.